it's always ironic in songs like that when a blind person sings, uh, writes clearer than ever I see. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly about her, uh, someone asked her one time, wouldn't you like to be healed? And she said, no. She goes, I would like for the first sight that I see to be Jesus. And she knew she would be healed one day. Uh, that's uh, quite amazing, quite amazing. And Brother Dale, you got me. Those last two songs were things that I didn't know the words to and I uh, had to look back. And a lot of them I know, but they, that, that got me, that got me. Well, um, let me tell you about a man that uh, was a deacon and on the search committee at First Baptist Church of Chelsea when I went there. His name was uh, C.W. Parker. He was well known in that area, uh, mainly because of his family. His dad had a big ranch there, and uh, C.W., or Brother Carl, as we called him, he moved to Borger, Texas, and worked on the railroad for a long time, and then retired, came back, moved on the family land, and they, uh, of course, you know, living there and working at the church. We had a lot of church fellowships and that kind of thing in their house. They were sweet people and loved us. And uh, Brother Carl was one of those guys that was kind of a financial genius. Um, he worked hard, but he was also very frugal. And uh, he told me at one point, he said, I have 80 cents out of every dollar I've ever earned right now. I'm like, whoa. And he said, in just a few years, if things keep going, I'll have... <clears throat> over a hundred percent investments and that kind of thing. In fact, when we got ready to build a parsonage there, um, they had an old cracker box house built in World War II with termites and all kinds of things like that that um, had been moved about three times. And that's what we were living in, and we were happy to live there. But um, I think to kind of entice us to stay a little longer, they built a a house there. They already had the property and they built the house on it and it was a nice brick, four bedroom, three bath home and uh, one of the nicest houses in town. And uh, he came to me one time and he said, I think I'm supposed to give uh, a tenth of what the cost of the house will be and he wrote out a check for uh, $11,000 and uh, that was back in, gosh, the late 80s. So think about the money and what that would not buy now. But uh, then he looked at me and he said, and I know what you make. And he goes, and I'm going to give you, I want you to be able to give a good offering to the parsonage. So he wrote me a check for $1,000 and said, put that in the fund and don't tell anybody it came from me. And he did stuff like that all the time for people. I was talking to him one day and he was telling me stories about the Great Depression uh, I, of course, wasn't born during the Great Depression. I've never known any hard times like that. I've heard stories from my mom and from my dad and from grandparents, of course. And uh, some of you lived through that, but most of us didn't. And uh, the stories that I heard from my family, none of them were saved. And I heard about poverty and want and lack and hunger and abuse and different things like that. And uh, I heard a different story from Brother Carl. Brother Carl's dad was a Christian. Brother Carl's dad was a giver. 
And he would make sure that whatever he had, that he shared it. And uh, that was whether it was financial, through his giving to the church, or helping poor people, whether it was through his garden, whether it was giving away uh, a cow to somebody who was struggling. I heard stories about him giving uh, a cow to a widow in town, and she would have it butchered and then have meat for her family, different things like that. And he said, Pastor... He said, I learned from watching my dad in the hardest of times, the Depression, that God takes care of his people when they are generous to give. And he said, my dad would make sure when tomatoes came in, he would make sure that the preacher was taken care of. He would make sure that the widows in the church were taken care of. And he said, our garden produced during those Dust Bowl days when nobody else's in town did. He said, my dad would make sure that the preacher had meat. He would make sure that the widows had meat when they butcher, you know, cattle. And he said, and in the spring when the cows would calve, he said, uh, lo and behold, my dad's uh, cows would have twins. And he always had more than he needed because he always gave it away. And he said, and I learned way back then that you can't outgive God and to honor him with the first fruits of your giving, like it says in Proverbs, and he will make your barns overflow. Remember that verse? Give and it shall be given unto you, it says in Luke. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And uh, old man Parker didn't always have a whole lot to give. He didn't wait until he had the, uh, the cows had twins in order to give. He gave before that. And God blessed him as a result. And it was so nice to hear stories like that because I thought if hard times ever do come into our lives, we can claim the promises, we can still be generous, and we know that God's going to take care of us. And one of Carl Parker's favorite verses was in the Psalms where David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. Boy, you know, when you think about that and hear those stories, I don't know about you, it makes me just whew, sigh of relief. The Lord is going to take care of us. I don't know what the economy is going to do in the United States or in the world, but I know that if I'm living on God's economy and not the world's economy, I may never be rich, but I'll always have what I need, and so will you. And the key is... For us to learn to trust God and to walk with God and then to share what God has given us. That was a, a neat thing to hear and a wonderful thing to encourage me. I was young then and had young children. Uh, Chelsea may not have even been born at that point. But it gave me hope that I would always be able to take care of my family. And uh, that, that was a good thing. And uh, I've always had a little bit of fear of hard times. And I think a lot of that is because the stories that I would hear from my mom and my dad's side of the family about that same thing. We didn't have any Carl Parkers in our family back then. And so it was a whole different, different story and kind of scary to think about. And I thought, what would happen if we ever had another depression, another stock market crash, and all of those kind of things that go on, and difficult times. 
And I can remember praying, oh Lord, I pray you would bring revival to America. And then I thought, what if that means another war like World War II? What if that means a, uh, uh, another uh, pandemic like polio and some of those other things? That was way before COVID, of course. What if it means an economic crash, loss of jobs and all of those kind of things? And I would just feel fear well up within me. And God used Carl Parker to show me that bad times sometimes have a good purpose. That might be even a better title for the message tonight. And that the very thing that we fear is an opportunity for God to show His strength, His power, His love, His mercy, and His provision to the children of God. A marked difference between Carl Parker's testimony and family and the Keenan family, or the Finn family on my mom's side. Marked difference because God takes care of His children even during the bad times. And I hope that kind of soaks into your heart and takes away some of your fear. You're not dependent upon the economy or who's in the White House or economic policies. I mean, I want good economic policies and good leadership as much as anybody. I'm a low-tax and cut spending and get rid of some of the fat. It's, it's just ridiculous some of the things our government spends uh, money on. And I'm for cutting out all of that kind of stuff and having sound economic policies as much as anybody, maybe even more than most. At the same time, I do find comfort in knowing that I don't have to depend upon all that because we, never, we may never see those days. And yet God is going to take care of His people and He's going to do a work because He has a purpose even in the hard times. So turn in your Bibles... To Psalm 107, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, and we'll begin reading in verse 4. Now, this is the psalmist looking back at the time when Israel was wandering in the desert, like we're studying about in uh, Exodus. Verse 4, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. No resources, nothing like that at all, desolate they found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. They just about starved to death. Verse 6, then, that's an important word right there, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 7, and he led them forth, by the right way, that kind of gives the implication they had been going the wrong way, but now they're going the right way. Why? Here's a purpose clause. That they might go to not just any city, but a city for a dwelling place. And then he just can't help it, but he says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Somebody say amen. I read that and it dawned on me that when Israel 
had things going well, they tended to stray. It was when things got rough that they would cry out to the Lord. And I wonder if America is not the same way. I wonder what it will take to humble this nation, to bring this nation to repentance, to bring this nation to believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what I pray for. And I regularly pray for salvation for President Biden and his family, for Vice President Harris and her family. I pray regularly that God would save members of the House of Representatives and of the Senate. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see a movement of God in those high levels of government? I pray regularly for God to take those people in those higher levels who hate God and hate morality and hate the Word of God and hate people like us, and that God would raise up a Daniel. God would raise up a Joseph, like he did in the Old Testament, and plant them right in the midst of the administration, right in the midst of Congress, and give them wise counsel and let them be heard. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I pray that for governors and state legislators. I pray that for mayors and for city councilmen and people. I pray that for judges at every level all the way to the Supreme Court that they might have salvation and they might have wisdom and they might have a Joseph or a Daniel to give them advice. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And as I pray for that, I wonder if some of the things we've experienced and some of the things that we will experience will be used by the Lord to bring humility to this nation. Shouldn't these tornadoes and the outbreak that happened just recently, shouldn't that bring people to their knees? Shouldn't the fact that we've been involved in a war against terrorism for all of these years and all of the lives lost, shouldn't that pack out our churches every week? When you look around and you see the immorality and we stubbornly, stubbornly persist in our immorality. Back in the early 80s, I heard a man say when everybody was scared to death of AIDS and that we were going to get AIDS by touching a doorknob and it was going to be a pandemic and wipeout, they said that by the year 2000, everybody would know somebody who died of AIDS and somebody in their family would die of AIDS. I mean, they expected it to really spread. And uh, people were scared to death. You would see people in bathrooms where they would wash their hands and then save their paper towel to open the door and then toss it away. In COVID, that's not a bad idea either. And uh, here's what I heard a preacher say. If they ever come up with a cure or a treatment for AIDS and people don't change their ways, he said, wait and watch. Something worse will come along until finally people's attention, uh, God gets people's attention. And uh, I think about all of the things that we have been through since then. When you look at 9-11, when you look at the pandemic, when you look at all of these different things that have happened and how long they last, 
All of the churches were filled the Sunday after the 9-11 attacks. But it only took about two weeks for things to go back to normal. Look what COVID has done to church attendance in America now. And uh, all of these things that are going on, what, what's happening? We're looking and turning the wrong way, even, even people who claim to be Christians. So what is it going to take to humble us as believers? And then what is it going to take to humble this nation? The Bible says things like, it's foolish to trust in chariots and horses. We might say tanks and airplanes and not to trust in the Lord. But we think that we've got an army and a military that can handle all of this and surely nothing will happen like that. We've got the greatest economy in the world. Surely nothing will happen. And on and on and on we go. What, what, what's it going to take? And if we pray for revival and awakening in America, what are we really asking for? And what is that really going to entail? And here's a question, I think, before we go any further to ask you. If you pray and want America to have a spiritual awakening, and the only way that is going to happen is through difficult and perilous times, would you still want it? Or would you back off and say, well, I'll forfeit the revival so that I can be economically prosperous? And remember what Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. Remember that he told us where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Do we really treasure revival? Do we really treasure the glory of God? Do we really treasure the kingdom of God? Do we really treasure the conversion of souls? And all those things that bring glory to the Lord. Or are we content just to say, as long as I've got money in the bank, food in my stomach, I don't really care what happens to the nation or anything else. And maybe that's why we don't see revival in our nation. Because as believers, we really don't want it. So what's God going to have to do to bring us to repentance, much less the nation in which we live and the world in which we live. I want you to think about some verses here that kind of go with that. Uh, they're on the screen there. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 13. Here's what Moses said as a warning before they entered the promised land to the people of God. It would apply to us. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today, lest, now listen to this, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. What was he saying there? There's a tendency to drift when everything's going well when we get rich, when we get prosperous, we forget God. There was probably a time when give us this day our daily bread meant a whole lot more to people in this country than it does now. I think more about what I'm going to eat rather than if I'm going to eat. But I think about our ancestors 
who wondered in the dead of winter if they were going to eat. And somebody would go out in a blizzard and in the cold weather to try to hunt down a deer or a squirrel or a rabbit or something like that, just thankful to have anything to feed their families. We're so far beyond that. And has it caused us maybe to forget God and what He has said? And it may be that our prosperity is our worst enemy in terms of walking with God. It's, it's amazing to me. I was thinking the other day about the tornadoes that have hit our area and then those that have hit Kentucky so hard. And I prayed and I said, Lord, thank you for a nation that is so blessed, so prosperous, and so efficient that unlike third world countries, we can rush in immediately to the rescue of people who are hurting. And there'll be hospitals, there'll be medicines, there'll be ambulance people, there'll be firefighters, there'll be cops, National Guard, all kinds of people, not to mention utility workers and construction crews. I mean, we know how that, that's going to work. The scars will stay around for a while, but power will be restored fairly quickly. Resources and food and water and all of that will get there fairly quickly. And that area will rebuild and in 10 years you'll have a hard time knowing that anything happened we've seen that that's unheard of in other nations that's unheard of in other countries in other countries that would make such devastation that their economy would never recover and we're not in the greatest of times right now but we've got plenty and people can give and the government has resources it is amazing and yet we find that like Moses warned Israel, we have and are living in a country that has God in God we trust on our money and yet we have forgotten God in so many ways because we're fat, sassy, and happy and contented. Proverbs 30 verse 8 and 9 says, Remove from me falsehood and lying. Now listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God you know it's easy to read but it's a little hard to pray isn't it Boy, maybe our nation has become so rich and full that we've forgotten God. Maybe we have become so prosperous and full that even we have forgotten God. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, I'll read quite a bit in this, but the backdrop of the story is Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who conquered Jerusalem and Judah and spread the Chaldean Empire or the Babylonian Empire uh, to be the largest in the world at that time. He looked over the city of Babylon with all of its magnificent gardens and everything there in the desert. And he got really proud and really cocky and really arrogant about what he had done and what the city was like. And you remember that God said to him through a dream, I'm going to take your reasoning power away from you and you're going to be like an animal. 
And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, the great conqueror of Babylon, lived like an animal. Lived like an animal. His restoration is found in Daniel 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And what did he do as a result? And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him. Boy, that's an amazing thing. I honored him who lives forever. Can you imagine? This pagan king gets saved after seven years of bad times, living like an animal. He goes on to describe God, a beautiful description, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, unlike Nebuchadnezzar's, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. See, Nebuchadnezzar's is going to fall under Belshazzar, and the Persians were going to conquer Babylon, but God's kingdom is never conquered. He goes on to say, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stop his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors... And my lords sought me. Now that's pretty big after being crazy for seven years, isn't it? God not only gave his reasoning power back to Nebuchadnezzar, but he gave him status and credibility so that his government officials and his counselors came to him. That, that's about as big a miracle as anything, isn't it? And he said, and I was established in my kingdom, because God put him there. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How did this pagan, idol-worshipping, Babylonian king get to that point? Only when God touched him and took away his reasoning power and he lived like an animal. And when it was restored after seven years, then he had a different outlook. And what I'm saying is that bad times can do something that good times never do. And when we see friends, family members, neighbors, even a nation go through hard times... One of the first things we want to do is to pray for their relief. And then we wonder why God doesn't answer. And it may be because God is doing something we can't see. Maybe he's answering a prayer that we prayed before. Oh God, reach them, touch them, save them. And God is taking them down a difficult road so that they will cry out to God. Have you ever noticed how many times when you hear a testimony, somebody says, I came to the end of my rope and I had no place else to look but up 
and I turned to the Lord, and God delivered me, and God saved me. How many songs have been written about that kind of uh, situation? Sometimes one song says, you have to be knocked down to look up. Oh, how true that is. And that's what these verses we've been reading about say, and that's what God did even to Israel. So how can these bad times turn into something good or be used to something good? And let me give you just four reasons here. I think they'll make sense. Number one, because they create desperation. And apparently, as human beings, until we get desperate, we don't really make any changes. We don't really look anywhere outside of ourselves. Whenever we've got it made, we think we did it. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we give ourselves the glory and we're just wise, and we're just smart, and we're just good entrepreneurs, and we're just hard workers, and we're just of good character. And we don't humble ourselves until times get tough. They wandered in the wilderness, it says, in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. And so it's brokenness that got their attention. Then they cried out to God. In Psalm 51, 17, it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, he won't overlook that. He overlooks the proud, self-sufficient heart, but he doesn't overlook the broken and contrite heart. And folks, we run from brokenness, and yet God meets us at the point of our brokenness. Maybe the reason we don't really see him moving and doing that much in our own lives is because we're not broken. God looks for the broken hearted and the broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And so when God is bringing you or a loved one or even a nation to the point of desperation, start praising him. That means he's doing something great and he may be getting ready to bring revival. But if we're not willing to go through that and we don't want that, we're choosing the wrong thing, aren't we? Number two, bad times can become good because they narrow down options. Have you ever noticed that we feel good when we have options? It's kind of nice to know that when you get four job offers, well, I don't have to be working at this place. If I don't want to, I can go there, 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 or there. Man, that makes me feel good. But what do I feel like when the options are gone and this is the only thing that I've got? All of a sudden, I feel closed in. I feel stuck. I feel like I am not able to do anything. I just have to endure this and grind it out and keep my hands to the plow. Sometimes when there are lots of options, as humans, we have this innate ability to go and walk through the wrong door. Remember, let's make a deal? And Monty Hall, let's make a deal. And Carol Merrill, remember her? And they said, what door do you want? One, two, or three? You know, I always knew if I was ever on that show, I would pick the door that didn't, I wouldn't pick the door with the new car. I wouldn't pick the door with the tour of Europe. I'd pick the door that had like donkey food or something like that in it, Right? And as a human being, I have a tendency to pick those doors. And you know, God is so good as to bring us to the point to where he narrows us down, where we don't have any other path to trod, and he crowds us to the cross. 
He brings us to the point to where we can't get anywhere else except to Him. And so through that, He delivers us and He saves us. He narrows down options. Verse 6 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses, and He led them forth by the right way. That implies there's only one way to go. And Israel had been going all the wrong ways until they got right with God. Then they went the right way. No other options. No other plan B or C or D or anything else. Just this. God got them in the right way. Why? That they might go to not just any city, but a city for their dwelling place. And you know, God has a place He wants to get you in sanctification and in your walk with Him. And he will narrow down and hem you in and shut doors so that he can get you right where he wants you. It's not that he's abandoned you. He's working on you. It's not that he's through with you. He's working on you. You just haven't gotten to that place where he wants you to be quite yet. And that may be the place of desperation and a broken heart so he can really minister to you. Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. That's my prayer regularly for our church. Open the doors you want us to walk through and shut the doors that would be the wrong place for us to go. The Lord knows how we're supposed to walk. And so he makes us desperate. He narrows our options, and he can do that even for a nation. You don't have the resources to go here and to do this. It, it brings you down to a point to where you can't do all of the things you might want to do. You've just got to do what God wants you to do. That's never a bad place to be, but it feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Thirdly, these bad times are good for us because they make us thankful. You know, my mom said something when she had been very, very sick for quite a while... And then she started feeling better. She made this statement. You really don't know how good it feels to feel good until you felt really bad. Some of you know what that means. I thought I was just feeling normal. Boy, normal feels great. And I took it for granted is what she was saying. And there are some things that we don't really get thankful for until we have to do without. You may get in your old car and cuss it, you know, or want to, till it breaks down and you don't have a car. And when you're walking, when you're depending on other people, then that old car looks pretty good. And when it gets out of the shop and it starts up and you drive it off, all of a sudden now you have a whole new perspective. Can you imagine what it must be like for people that they and their families are truly hungry when they actually do get food. Can you imagine living in a country where you go to a store and there's nothing but empty shelves? One time, uh, Enrique Montoya came here from Venezuela. That's right about the time Hugo Chavez took over and they started moving like we are to a socialist uh, type of government. And uh, when they were here, Brother Dale asked the man with Enrique, what, what is your impression? Is this your first time to the United States? Yes, it is. What are you thinking about? And he goes, I can't believe the variety of things that you have. He was just blown away by the menu at the restaurant. 
It was a Golden Corral buffet, and he was blown away by all of the food. Imagine what he thought when he went into a grocery store. We sometimes forget, and we become unthankful, and all we can see is what we don't have instead of all the things that we have. God, help us. God, help us. And we fall prey into that just like our culture does. We think that we're entitled. And we think that all of this is normal. It's not. It's not. They make us thankful. Verse 8 says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Boy, you say, I just don't have much in my life to be thankful for. Are you saved? Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Are you going to heaven when you die? Do you have a copy of the Word of God? Do you have friends? Do you have a church family? I mean, think about the things that God has done and that only God can do. And we skate right by them and we're upset because we don't have the latest model Cadillac. We're upset because we weren't able to go to the nicest restaurant in town or we weren't able to take a vacation like we wanted to take and yet we're so unthankful for what we have. And fourthly, these bad times are good because they cause us to find peace in the Lord. Boy, you and I are alike and this nation is like us, all humanity is like us. If I can find peace anywhere else besides the Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it in a heartbeat and all the while claim that I'm not. You know, it's like this friend of mine, he said one time to me, he goes, man, God has just taught me about contentment. I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. He goes, yeah. He goes, I have found that I can be just as happy in a $300,000 house as I can a $500,000 house. He said, I can be just as happy driving a Ferrari as I am driving a Cadillac. He goes, boy, God is good. And of course, he was being sarcastic, and we laughed about it. But doesn't that kind of describe us? When everything's good and we've got all that we want, oh, I give all the glory to God. And then when it's not quite that way, what happens to that attitude? When we grumble and we gripe and we get down in the mouth and we get discouraged and we wonder why God is not being good to us and we don't understand. God wants us to find our peace and our rest in Him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But instead, we run to our jobs. We run to our bank account. We run to our material possessions. We look to our family. We look to our friends. Everywhere but to the Lord. Could it be that God may be getting ready to take us to the point to where we say, the peace and the contentment that I thought I had to have in all of this stuff, I now find in the Lord Jesus. Would that be a bad thing? No. That would be peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense. That would be peace that Jesus said, I give unto you, not as the world gives. And that's really what we need. Can you imagine what it would be like if this were true of us? My peace, my rest, my joy really is in the Lord. And not just the stuff that He gives me, but it really is in Him. Boy, talk about 
having opportunities to witness. And you'd have them just, you know, running out your ears, wouldn't you? What a difference it would be, especially as the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as we say, and yet we're shining like bright lights because our peace is not in all of this. Our peace is in the Lord. And that's why he says, for he satisfies, and notice this, the longing soul. I'm not very satisfied in the Lord. Well, maybe it's because you don't have a longing soul. You got a satisfied soul. You're pretty well content in all of the things you have and all the things that you do. And the Lord says he satisfies the longing soul. Maybe your soul's not right. And you don't really long for it. You don't really want it. And therefore, you don't really get it. You're content. Somebody said one time, it's Leonard Ravenhill, in fact. He said, the reason we don't have revival is because we're content to live without it. Boy, that's true. The longing soul is satisfied. Is your soul the longing soul? And he fills the hungry soul with goodness. If your soul is not hungry, it's probably not going to get filled. He feeds those who are hungry. He fills those who thirst and hunger for righteousness sake. But if you're not hungry, if you're not thirsty, then he'll just leave you alone. Let you go to your own resources until they run out. Until you finally figure out that nothing can satisfy your soul except Jesus. So when I look at that and I see these times of brokenness, I think about what are we really praying for? Oh God, bring a spiritual awakening to our country. Well, you might ought to fasten your seatbelt and know that God is going to take care of you, but it may be a rough ride even for us. And the question is, is it worth it if God is glorified and souls are saved and a nation gets back on track? Far too easy to say yes without counting the cost, right? Better think about that. And yet at the same time, we need to get to the place to where that's what we really want. What should happen is Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 6 or do you despise the riches of his goodness, that means take them for granted, his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous. And I'm afraid that's what our nation is doing. The goodness of God is causing us to become hard-hearted and penitent, and we don't realize the wrath of God is real. And yet nobody ever talks about that. What it usually takes is Hosea chapter 2, 5 through 7. Hosea's wife went back into prostitution, and here's what God said. For their mother has played the whore... She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she has said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water. See, she's looking to them for her resources. My wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, now this is God speaking, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. They're confused. 
And she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She can't get to them, and they can't get to her. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And that's a sad thing. God has blessed us and blessed our nation so much. But are we taking those blessings and turning them into praise and thankfulness and honor to the Lord? Or are we thinking we have provided for ourselves and we chase after, like the prostitute, our lovers because we think that's where we're going to find it. And our lovers may be, again, a job, a bank account, it may be friendships, it may be any number of things, anything but the Lord, we're committing spiritual adultery. So tonight, the call is, let the bad times you go through, you may be in bad times right now, let them draw you to the cross. Let them crowd you to the cross. Let them bring you to the God of peace and restoration. And quit looking around and trying to run other places. Run to Him. And as we pray for our nation and pray for revival and spiritual awakening, what is God going to have to do? I don't know. But He'll take care of you. He'll take care of me. We'll be able to shine as bright lights in a dark world. And it may be what has to happen if we are serious about our prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Lord, as we think about all of the things that our nation has gone through and is going through, we want to thank you that you have been so incredibly good to us through the years. I thank you, Lord, that in spite of our wars and some of them mismanaged, we haven't been conquered. That our nation still stands in spite of terrorism, in spite of disease and pandemics. Our nation still stands. We still have freedoms to do what we're doing tonight, to gather and to preach your word. Thank you for that, Lord. Don't let us take it for granted. We may have some shortages and some things that temporarily we can't get. But thank you, Lord, that none of us are going hungry. And that reminds me to pray for the homeless people that we're praying for. And I pray for the one that I have, for Robert. Pray that they would find shelter tonight. Pray that they would find food. Pray that they would find friendship. Pray that they would get the help they need if their homelessness is caused by alcohol or drugs deliver them and get them treatment if it's by mental illness we pray that you would heal them if it's an economic situation we pray that you would rectify that and we pray that they would come to know the love of God the grace of God through the death burial and resurrection of Christ that they would repent and believe the gospel and be born again and how wonderful that would be but at the same time Lord we thank you that we're not out on the streets and we thank you that even in this raging wind, we find shelter in our own homes and in our cars. And we don't thank you enough for all of that. Thank you, Lord, that when we go to the gas pump, there's gasoline there. When we go to the grocery store, there's food there. 
Thank you when we flip the light switch, they come on. Thank you that when it's cold, we have heat. And when it's hot, we have air conditioning. We are so incredibly blessed. But we thank you above all that we know Christ. That he has paid for our sins. That he is our advocate before the Father. That he is the one who makes intercession for us. Thank you, Lord, as we think about our freedoms for the way that you're also with Christians who are under persecution tonight, who are in jails, who are being tortured, whose families don't know what they're going to do, and their churches are afraid. Bless them, Lord. Help them. Provide for them and deliver them. And we also want to remember that as we think about what we go through in times of grief, the grief is real. And yet, for those of us who are saved, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Help and minister to the grieving. We thank you, Lord, and this is pretty fresh on my mind, for doctors, for nurses, hospitals, medicines, and just the healing power that is upon us because we're made in the image of God. Heal our sick folks. Give them motivation. Give them good treatment, good therapy. And may they press on and be able to rejoin us one of these days. Help our families and make them strong. Marriages to be strong. Parents to be strong. Children to love you and to love their mom and dad and be obedient. And help us, Lord, as we look around at this world to see the suffering that's going on and to stop and think maybe the suffering is drawing someone to Jesus and then to say to you, how can I help? How can I be involved? And may we be available to you to be witnesses for Christ. And Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit is praying for us now. Because you're praying about things that I haven't even thought of. Thank you for that, Lord. And for making this prayer acceptable to the Father. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. All that your name might be hallowed. First in us and throughout the world. And we pray this now. Thanking you for your precious word. In Jesus' name. Amen.